Last week, we talked about this. What is this? The triangle of change. So many of you know that. I teach on it. About 50 of you have gone through the, uh, the James Bryan Smith series of books with me on Wednesday nights. And uh, so you all know that. And I, I know I've drawn pictures up here and stuff. It's basically the idea that change, what I mean by change, and it affects any change, but the change we care about is development in Christ-likeness. The fact that we are always supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus. If we're not becoming more and more like Jesus, we're stuck and something's wrong. But here's what happens. We want to bring our transformation in our lives. We say, I wish I didn't have that bad temper. I wish I was more kind. I wish I was more loving. But we don't know how to do it. Well, what we try to do is, just, you ever try to do this? I'm just going to be more patient with that person. You ever try to be more patient with your kids? I'm just going to be more patient. You can fake it on the outside. But on the inside, you can still be a boiling cauldron. And so transformation into Christ's likeness is about becoming different on the inside. We talk about that a lot around here. And we found in the triangle of change, which again is not my idea, it's, a, it's an educational model, that um, you change the most, these important things in your life and transformation into Christ's likeness will happen indirectly. So you change in the top, you change what you believe. It's all your, your story. You, you believe your narratives. It's primarily what you believe about God and the world. So you make sure that lines up with Scripture. And what I find is I'm walking people through that in a, in a long-term process. We believe a lot of things about God that aren't true. Some of you believe God's mad at you. God's not mad at you. So we help people. What you do is we understand. We have to change what they believe. Then we change the activities they're engaged in, the spiritual disciplines in your life, the spiritual exercises. Do you engage in, in, uh, in times of sitting in silence with the Lord? And we, and we want to teach how to, how to spend time in the Bible and in prayer and, and in worship. And so as you change your narratives and you change your dis, dis, disciplines and then you do it with a community of believers that's also wanting to grow, you could be in a community of people who are legitimate Christians that have no care about growth, that is, they're happy just being stuck, that, that won't help you to grow. But if you do these three things and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, change happens indirectly. And we talked about this last week, that we focus on this a lot. But we said something last week, that the intention of this is what? Somebody do it for me. Here you go. It's this. The intention of this is this, which is a heart change. We become more like Jesus on the inside. And this translates into something else. Into this. About caring for what Jesus cares about. Caring for the lost. And Jesus said it this way. This translates into this, meaning lifting up your eyes and seeing the fields that are ripe for harvest all around you, seeing needs around you and saying, I want to get engaged in that, in that process. I want to get engaged in, as I'm transformed this way, my heart has changed and now my, I raise my eyes, I look on the fields for white for harvest and I see what Jesus sees, people who need the Lord and I want to get engaged with them. And so that was kind of the whole sermon last week. And today I want to take that idea and I want to go a little bit further into this. I think there are a few more things that the Lord really wants us to understand about this tied particularly to his mission. So let's talk about two primary things today. Let's talk about the mission of God and we'll talk about God's call into mission. Now what I did not say is God's call into missions. Big difference we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the mission of God 
and we're going to talk about God's call into mission. So first of all, the mission of God. And I want to start this way. I want to start by watching about a five-minute video that does a better job of explaining what I want to explain because it's visual than I could ever do standing up here and trying to explain it. So I want you to watch this short little video from the Bible project called Heaven and Earth. Let's watch this. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth Uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling 
among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Now, have you ever thought of it like that before? I'm hoping that that short little video is helping you understand the mission of God a little better. I'm hoping that I can take this and now kind of piece it together for you and help us to see the big picture because quite honestly, I believe we generally don't. And I think because we don't see the big picture, we really miss the point of Christianity. We miss the point of the church. We miss the point of mission. We miss the point of all of it. And we just think think our own little life is just somehow we kind of do whatever we want to do and just hope to fly off to heaven in the end. And we think that's what it's all about. I got saved, so I go to heaven. And that's not at all, I agree with him completely, that's not at all the message of Scripture. Is it true if I get saved and go to heaven? Yes. But that's not the main heart of the, of the, of the gospel. Um, the main idea is this, that God has a global, eternal mission. That he is reestablishing his rule, his kingdom, every time someone comes to him as Savior. When somebody comes to him as Savior, sin is dealt with, the relationship is restored. When you come to Jesus as Savior, you enter into his kingdom, and now, as a little dot showed, that's why I played this, I basically had the sermon done, and I found this video, and I said, man, this does a great job of helping us understand this, that wherever the dots go, that everywhere you are at as a child of God, 
the kingdom of God is. Everywhere you're at as a child of God, the kingdom of God is. And Jesus said, relating to that, that idea of going all over, he said he has a mission. He says, my mission, his mission, is to seek and to save the lost. So that wherever a lost, whenever a lost person comes to him for salvation, the kingdom rule is expanded and established. You see, missions isn't about sending missionaries to exotic places to convert heathens so that we can say our organization is growing or at least say, well, at least they're now believing the same thing we are believing. That's not what missions. Missions is about becoming part of God's global eternal plan to reestablish his kingdom rule on all of the earth. Here as well as any place, as the village that, that Greg Mundus talks about. It's here and it's in that village in the sea on a little island in the ocean. It's about rescuing lost people from the kingdom of evil and darkness and helping them find freedom and joy in God's kingdom, in God's presence. presence. It's being part of helping mankind experience what was God's original plan for everyone. To live with him in his presence under the protection and the rule and the blessing of his kingdom. That's God's plan. That's what missions is. It's joining with God in his global eternal mission. Now hear me today. It's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than anything else you're engaged in. I don't, you have a great business? Cool. You have a nice career? Wonderful. You're enjoying retirement? Great. But all of that has to be subject to the reality that we are to be engaged in the global eternal mission of God. It's why he brings us into his family. It's a big deal. It's worth taking a month to make sure we are not so focused on self and even the development of our spiritual lives. Matter of fact, is I have this privilege of being part of this, this school I'm at going to Wichita, Kansas, in a school for spiritual formation. I love it. It's all focused on this. But I constantly challenge the people there. They're, most of them are PhDs and they're way more educated than me. I go, guys, this is about this. And I never really used that before. I thought of that last week. But, but this is about this. So it's about this. That we can be so, it's worth taking a month to do this because to make sure that we're not full focused on this or just focused on ourself, that we forget to look up and see a harvest and join into God's mission with him. Now, this leads to a second thing that I want to talk about today. We're saying this is God's mission and it's worth investing in, but, but it deals with something else and it's this, God's call into mission. And this is what this is the point that I really want us to get today. Because what's so easy is we say, oh, that person's called into missions, and then we think that that has nothing to do with us. And I would venture to say I disagree with that completely based on God's word. So God's call into mission. Have you been reading the short stories from this book that we gave out this month for missions? Hopefully you've been doing that. There's been there's like 33 little tiny short stories in there. And uh, you've been read, you read uh, if you've read them, some of them, you've read a number of stories about people 
saying that they felt called specifically by God to leave America and go to some particular country as missionaries. Let me give you an example. Page 29 of the book, um, entitled Answering My Own Prayer, uh, Bill McDonald. It says, My first venture out of the United States was a short trip to Mexico with my wife, Connie. We planned the normal tourist adventures with the goal of purchasing some blankets, vanilla, and a few souvenirs. Indeed, God changed the course of our lives. I came home from Mexico with a heart for Hispanic people. I could not say I was called, but the experience started me on a path of genuine interest in missions. Connie and I were on staff at Evangel Christian Life Center in Louisville, Kentucky, So construction trips, financial support, and prayer for missions became a regular part of our ministry. Each morning when I arrived at church, I went to the prayer room before going to my office, and I would close my time of prayer. I always placed my hands on a huge map of the world and prayed, Lord, send someone. One morning, for some unexplainable reason, I was drawn to pray for the country of Ecuador. I didn't know anything about Ecuador, I thought it was spelled Ecuador, so he changes, shows how he thought it was spelled. I laid my hands on the postage size stamped, size stamped country in South America and prayed what I had prayed so many times before, Lord, send someone. Each day I prayed over the entire map, but Ecuador kept invading my heart. One morning in frustration I prayed, Lord, what's the big deal about Ecuador? And very clearly the Lord spoke to my heart, I want you to answer your own prayer. Instead of going to my office, I went straight home to tell Connie the exciting news. She was shocked when I walked into the house. Connie, I said, the Lord spoke to me today. You won't believe this, but I was called to be a missionary to Ecuador. Connie looked shocked. look of shock deepened. Who is going to be your wife in Ecuador, she asked. (laughs) I knew I was not responsible to call Connie. If God called me, he would call her too. Time passed. And one day, Connie handed me a small box. Inside was a brass globe attached to a note that read, I will go anywhere in the world with you. We were appointed as missionaries to Ecuador in 1988. And it goes on to to explain um, their time in Ecuador. Here's my question. I read that on purpose for a reason that I hope jogs something inside of us. Is that a missions call? Is that a call into missions? Absolutely, it's a call in the missions. That's a call into missions. But it's much bigger than that. It's bigger than a few people having a miraculous call to do cross-cultural missions work. And when we think of missions, what we generally are talking about is cross-cultural missions work. I leave here and I go to Cambodia to teach Cambodians how to plant churches. And everything is different. And I raise a budget and I go there and people send me and I go to some other place that's totally different than my place and it doesn't know the gospel very well. And matter of fact, sometimes the gospel's not there at all and we think that's missions. People going cross-culturally, missions work. Friends, the call to join in God's mission is bigger than that. The call to join in God's mission is beyond simple cross-cultural missions work, which is one tiny slice of it. It's an important slice, but it's a small slice of it. The call to go, to join in God's mission is a universal call to all 
who claim Jesus as Savior. When you came to Christ and became part of His kingdom, you were grafted into His mission. Each kingdom citizen is just as called to be part of His mission as anyone else's. You hear that? Each kingdom citizen, if you're born again, that's you, is just as called to be part of God's mission as everyone else's, even if they had some divine call, laying their hand on a map, and God spoke to them, you are just as called to be part of his mission as is that person is. It's not um, that some are called the missions and some are not. Yes, some are called to cross-cultural missions, but all Christians are equally called to join into the mission of God to seek and to save the lost. The real question is not, am I called? But rather, what am I called to? That's the real question. For some, their part is to go cross-culturally. They really hear a voice that says, go to Ecuador, and they go to Ecuador, and amazing things happen in Ecuador. For some, it's to go cross-cultural ministry. But for some, it's to work a great job where they establish God's kingdom rule right where they are and invite others into a relationship with King Jesus and earn finances that can be used to send others around the world who are called to do something cross-culturally. And some are called to establish the kingdom in, in the neighborhood they've been in their whole life or maybe God calls them to move to being a light to those in the darkness around them, even the darkness of Port Washington or Cedarburg or Grafton. And while there, pray for the kingdom's advancement and for others also engaged in kingdom activity, both here and abroad. All Christians are equally called into God's mission. But this brings up a question. How do I know what what part I'm called to do. How do I know what part I'm called? If I'm all equally called, then that guy was privileged. God spoke to him and said, go to Ecuador, but I didn't hear that. How do I know what part I'm called to do? Well, it goes back to this. It all goes back to this. This is all about living a life centered upon experiencing and living in the presence of God. It's all about growing in Christ's likeness and deepening your relationship with Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Grab your Bibles. Turn to maybe the most famous of all the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I'm going to point out something that maybe you didn't really think of before in Isaiah chapter 6 that I think is, is if you get this point It'll change your life. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. You there? All right. Remember, this is Isaiah, a prophet of God. He has a vision from the Lord. That's what he's talking about. He's writing down his vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. 
With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. And we'll stop right there. He goes on to say what he called him to go and do. The reason I went to this text is because it very clearly shows something important about how God wants his people to engage in his mission. It shows this one word. It's a one word that sometimes we don't really like. Matter of fact, we often don't like it in Pentecostal charismatic circles because we don't like things necessarily decently in an order. But this is the one word. The word order. The word order. Write it down. Order. I'm going to explain what I mean. Order. Order is important here. It's going to answer your questions when you agonize and say, what am I supposed to do? This is your answer. Order. Meaning the order in which things happen. This is what we see in Isaiah 6. Order. Three points to the order. Presence. Meaning in being in God's presence. Call hearing his call, obedience, obeying what he says. Three parts in order, in order, in that order. Presence, call, obedience. Being in his presence, hearing his voice, doing what he says. Order, presence, call, obedience. Isaiah begins in God's presence. We know this about Isaiah, not just from this text, but from his life, what we read about him. He is a man engaged in a life of wanting to be in the presence of God. Here we find him, he's in the temple of God, he's worshiping God, he's living a life designed around being aware of the presence of God, living a life of intentional spiritual growth and awareness. That's Isaiah, he's a prophet of God. He's living his life saying, God, you're number one. I want to be in your presence. There's a big difference between saying, I know God is everywhere always, and saying I'm engaged with God at this moment, at this time. It's all about focus. It's about intentionality. It's about trade-offs. It's about saying, that's not as good as this. I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to engage in his presence, which means something else must go away at times, because I only have 24 hours in my day. Isaiah lived a life in the presence, being aware of the presence of God. People around him were just as much in God's presence, but they weren't aware of it, because they did not form their lives in a way to be aware of the presence of God. That's what this is all about. The triangle change is simply about helping you live in the presence of God. Isaiah lived this. He lived in the presence of God, in an awareness of the presence of God. So that's the first point, presence. But the second point, it's while he was aware of God's presence 
that he has a unique to him, and this is the important part, unique to him call. God says to Isaiah, who will go for me? And he says, I will go. It's a unique to him call. Friends, don't make the mistake of basing your call on what you ought to do on what I do. You will be frustrated. If any of you would have followed the path that Suzanne and I walked, you would have probably hung yourself by now. Going to to places with no money, starting churches, having faith, seeing things develop, getting them going, quitting when it's just thriving and going and starting over again, building them back up, going to... Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad for me. I'm saying I've loved it. You would have hated it because it's not your call. It's in the presence that as we're in his presence, we hear the unique to us call of God. It was in the presence of God that Isaiah heard God speak. The call or the direction of God is all about an active life in the presence of God. Too often, people agonize over the call of God. And I was one of those people for years and years and years and years. The depth of agony. Ask my wife agonizing over the call of God. What should I do? Where should I go? Suzanne used to get so mad at me for some reason, I little phrase used to say. I'd say, if you're a betting woman, do you think we'll be here next year? She's like, shut up. I'm not a betting woman. I don't care. Because I was always agonizing over the call of God. I didn't understand this idea of order and process. Too often we agonize over the call of God. There's no need for that. Here's what I found to be true. And it's part of maturing, but here's what I found to be true. Build your life around the presence of God, and from that relationship, he will direct your steps. It's that simple. Now, I'll tell you this. He also will usually only direct your steps one step at a time. You generally don't know what five steps down the road looks like, but build your life around the presence of God, and from that relationship, real relationship, not, I'm not saying build it around going to church. Going to church is only one of the spiritual disciplines. Build your life around a life in the presence of God and he will direct your steps from that presence. Now, this brings us to two observations that I generally see. First one is this. The reason many struggle to know where and how they fit into the mission of God, in other words, knowing what to do, is because their lives are really not built around being aware of the presence of God. That's just true. That was me for years. I was engaged in tons of church activity. But my life was not built upon and around being aware of the presence of God. My life was built around becoming a successful pastor and building churches and leading people into the kingdom. But it was not built around being in the presence of God. And some of you are in the same spot. The reason many struggle to know where and how they fit into the mission of God is because their lives are not really built around being aware of the presence of God. Isaiah structured his life in such a way that being aware of God's presence was his priority. It was number one. Everything else came in second or third place to God. Everything. Not everything except everything. And that's God's desire, friends, for all of us. That's not just a call to a, to a, to a, a prophet. That's a call to a Christian. That's God's desire for all of us. And you know why? It's not because he's some egomaniac that's demanding your attention. 
Sometimes we think that because we misunderstand God. Oh, God wants me to live my life aware of his presence because he's an egomaniac and he just wants my attention all the time. No, it's because he longs for each of us to fulfill our God-given destiny. And that calling flows from being in his presence. It's for our good. It's for our fulfillment. And it's so that he can accomplish the miraculous through you. That's the first observation. Second observation is this. It's obvious when someone does not structure their lives around being aware of the presence of God. It's obvious because they have little or no real desire to know their part in the mission of God. When I see a Christian, and I'm I'm saying definitely Christians, when I see a Christian that does not seem to really care about the mission of God and does not seem to care about their part in God's mission, it is fair to conclude that they are not spending much time being aware of the presence of God because if they did, they would be moved by his heart for lost people. That might not be fun, but that is true. It's true for me. And it's true for you. This, being in the presence, leads to this, which is a heart like God, which leads to this. Look at the fields, they're white for harvest. Now, that brings me to the third point. We said, what are the points? Presence, being in his presence, leads to hearing his voice to call. Then we get a choice to make. When he calls, we get to choose, are we going to, number three, obey, obedience. As a result of being in God's presence, one hears his voice and then one can walk in obedience. Whether that is going to a distant land or starting a Bible study at work or sacrificially giving to a mission so that others may go. And here's why this is so important. Because when we walk in obedience to God's plan, friends, listen to me, then miracles happen. When we walk in obedience to God's plan, then miracles happen. Simply look at the stories of Christ and and look at all the times where they just simply did what he said. Miracles happen. Peter, walk on the water. Miracle. Give me that kid's fish. I'll fish and loaf. I'll feed 5,000. Just do what I tell you to do. When you walk in obedience to God's plan, then miracles happen. Then we are amazed by God's provision. Where people say, Pastor Mark, how come God always seems to provide for you in these miraculous ways? Well, it's not because I'm special. It's because you simply obey God's plan. And when you obey God's plan, miracles happen. And you are amazed by God's provision. And we are awed by His activity when we obey His plan. But hear me today. But without a call that flows from God's presence, all we have is presumption. And I think much of the church world simply functions on presumption. We presume we know what to do, and we are limited, listen, limited by our individual abilities and resources. And those can be great, but you're limited by your abilities and resources. And I would say this, when a church world, when a church culture begins to act by presumption instead of obedience that flows from God's presence, then it must resort to manipulation and guilt to get what its plan is accomplished. Hear what I said? When a culture begins to act by presumption, a church culture 
having to depend on themselves, saying, I presume to do this because I didn't hear it from God, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depend on my own thing. I'm going to dream big dreams for God. Biggest bunch of nonsense in the world. God never told you to dream big dreams for him. God told you to do what he told you to do. He'll tell you what to do, and sometimes he'll give you ridiculously big dreams, but they're his dreams. Otherwise, they're presumption. And when a church world begins to act by presumption instead of obedience that flows from God's presence, then it must resort to manipulation and guilt to get its plans accomplished. So what do you see? You see high-pressure, guilt-driven, emotionally coerced, generally entertainment-based response and ministry. That's what you get if you operate by presumption. Let me tell you something, church. That's not God's plan for His people. He wants us to live and love in His kingdom. He wants those two worlds to intersect for you so that you are living in His kingdom today, not living with this, this crazy idea that I just got saved and I'm going to bounce to heaven someday and what I do now doesn't matter. What, matter, what matters now most importantly is you're engaged in the mission of God and helping to see God's mission of reaching, seeking and saving the lost accomplished. He wants us to live and love in His kingdom Structuring our lives around being aware of His presence. That needs to be the heart of your life. Structuring your life around being aware and engaged in His presence so that you can hear His voice about how we can engage in mission with Him and then walk in empowered obedience. And I promise you, if you'll do that, your life will never be boring for one second. If you find yourself being bored with Christianity, oh, guess what, kids? We have to go to church today. It's the thing we ought to do. Or come on, honey, get out of bed. We need to go to church. I'm telling you, that's not God's plan for your life. He wants you so engaged in his mission that all the encompassing parts of being with him, you don't want to trade anything else for it. Anything that will help you connect more holistically with Christ, you want to do. Because you experience this incredible thing that he says, now go do this. And you know what? You do that and it happens miraculously. And you go, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I talked to the person and they responded. That's just amazing. Why did it happen? It wasn't because of presumption. It happened because in the presence of God, you heard the voice of God. And you obeyed his voice. And all was available to you was all the power and strength and provision and miracle that comes from God himself. That's God's plan for our lives. Never boring. Always an adventure. He just gives us some times of getting a rest in the middle. Sometimes he's like, okay, Larson, just chill for a while. You know, you're, let, your, let your neurons rest for a while. Whoever you are, that's what he says. And then he says, hey, you're in my presence Let's do that. You go, that's impossible. He goes, yeah, for you it is, but it's nothing for me. Nothing. I can do it like that. You could never do it, but I can do it like that. Friends, that's what it's all about. So my encouragement this missions month is that each of us would simply examine our lives and see what the real focus of our life is. What's really the priority? And to make sure that the focus of our life is loving union with God. And then we'll hear his call. We'll choose to walk in obedience. And we'll be part of the miraculous, impossible mission work of God. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for me. Because it's awesome. Amen?
stand with me this morning.